Right. Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums uh, webinar and podcast with Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Oh, sorry, I think you're still muted there, Ashley. Oh, sorry about that. Um, good evening from Israel. Thank you very much, Stacey. Uh, as I'm sure anyone with a TV or access to internet around the world has seen or heard that it has been an extremely tumultuous week here in Israel, arguably the most tumultuous uh, in recent history. Um, you know, the scenes that were on the streets this week really caused a lot of concern to the average Israeli, uh, regardless of political or um, ideological identification. Uh, people were not ready for what they saw shutting down roads we've seen we've seen people demonstrate on the streets we've even seen the airport the access to the airport get shut down we did not see the airport having shut down as it was this week when the national labor union the historic got involved and basically shut the airport down both from incoming and outgoing uh, traffic uh, we saw massive demonstrations hundreds of thousands of people have come to the streets uh, in the end it was both pro and against uh, government reform. Uh, we saw rhetoric which really scared a lot of people on both sides um, of the column. Um, and really, we, people didn't know where it was going on Monday. You know, it was the start of an extremely important legislative week where potentially the government could have passed through at least the first leg of its most significant reforms, which was to change um, or reform the makeup of the Judicial Committee, uh, which would have allowed the government uh, more control over appointments. Uh, what they would argue is in line with um, systems around the world, chiefly the United States and elsewhere. Um, but it was uh, considered a red line uh, for many. And again, the, the voice was we're not ready to talk until this stops. And that had been pretty much the consistent rhetoric, the consistent message uh, from the leaders of the demonstration, which filtered down or up to the leaders of the opposition. Uh, that was the position of Lapid, of Gantz, of Lieberman, of Michaeli and others. They said that there was no chance to talk while this legislative process just goes streaming forward as it was. There was no halt in it. Um, but what we saw in the end was really the country pushed back from the brink. Netanyahu decided that he would put a pause uh, on the legislation. He made sure that all the central actors around him fell in line. He convinced the ultra-Orthodox to fall in line, which was probably one of the easier ones. He convinced uh, Vitaly Smotrich, who's uh, member of Knesset Simcha Rotman really had been the leader on the legisl uh, legislative part, especially in the Knesset Justice Constitutional Committee, really had led the line on this. 
um, and probably most difficultly uh, was Itamar Ben-Gvir of Otsma UD, the Jewish Power Party. In the end, it seems that he promised him instead that he would give him uh, the powers which were promised to him up front, which was to create a national guard. Some uh, naysayers would say it's a personal militia for Ben-Gvir, who would be a dangerous character to be in charge of such a militia. But the fact is he at least got something on it to come down with Netanyahu and the rest of the government. And what's happening now is that all legislation has been put on hold ever since it was officially called uh, on hold. Actually, just before it was officially put on the table, Simcha Rotman uh, basically pushed um, the law through. So it's ready for the second and third reading, uh, which some suspected was a bit of a trick, but the the coalition line was, well, this happened before there was any promises and it basically is just a procedural moment. It just gets it ready if and when, um, you know, talks break down or there's a need to push it forward. Perhaps it's part of leverage, what the, what the opposition say, well, the gun is loaded and it's on the table, it's a threat and it puts them um, in a bad position and it's done in very bad, um, it, it's a bad gesture. But the fact is that uh, all legislation at this point to do with the uh, judicial reform has been halted. Uh, in a few days, on Monday, I believe it is, the 2nd of April, the Knesset session will come to an end. The main aim of the proponents of judicial reform was to pass at least some, if not the main part, as I said, the, the part which deals with the Judicial Selection Committee, to pass that through before the end of April. Um, in the end, that is not going to happen. Uh, for a number of reasons, which I'll enunciate in, in a little bit. So it's definitely a failure on behalf of the government, behalf of those who promised it. Um, but there's obviously a lot of extenuating uh, circumstances around it. And what's happening now is um, the events are now being moved to the president's house. The president has once again asked and called for the discussions to take place under his guise, he's invited all the different parties, all the different players to sit down and talk. Many of the major political parties have nominated teams to sit around the table and discuss. Uh, the government is being pretty bullish about it. It's saying it's giving uh, time to talk. And I believe that the Pagra, the, uh, the Knesset vacation period um, is about a month, month and a half. So. There is an amount of time, but it's not an endless amount of time. And the government has said clearly that, uh, you know, it's still ready to push forward, but it wants to give uh, a chance uh, to, um, to talk and it wants to sit around the table. So where, how do we get where we are today? Well, there's a number of reasons. There was a lot of international pressure. The Americans came down stronger than anyone suspected. We heard even afterwards, we heard today President Biden on at least two occasions, his national security advisor, a, a council spokesperson, come very, very strongly, make statements about Israeli internal politics, which have probably not been heard in, in memory about, um, about this judicial reform and how it's important and why it's important. Uh, we did hear the night after um, Netanyahu called a halt uh, to the legislation, 
we did hear a hint from the ambassador, the US ambassador to Israel, that Netanyahu will be invited to the White House after uh, Passover, after Pesach, which is coming up next week. Uh, that was dampened somewhat by the White House, which said that there are no plans to do so. Probably they want to wait and see what will come out of the discussions before they uh, provide a formal invitation. But there are a lot of commentators which are looking at when and if there will be that formal invitation from the White House for a sit down between Biden and Netanyahu, because that's gauged very much uh, about relations between the two nations, which at the moment are pretty low. There's not a lot of love, not a lot of trust between the two. The Americans are extremely disappointed about a number of things. The Israelis are seething behind the scenes about how America got involved. There were hints primarily from uh, the Prime Minister Sanye Netanyahu, who does shoot from the hip quite a lot, who basically came out and said uh, openly that he believes the State Department was funding some of the demonstrations. So uh, there's, there's a bit of bad air at the moment uh, between uh, the two parties, and obviously that goes as well as Europe and, and other major players. But what really happened, most importantly, was what uh, in the Likud, there was a lot of disgruntlement for a long time. The, the overwhelming majority of people in the Likud are in favor of judicial reform. If not exactly Rotman or Levine's judicial reform, the maximalist version that had been put on the table the last few weeks, something very, very close. But I would say that the Likud at the moment was, or, or, or up until yesterday, were split into three uh, sort of levels. The first were the maximalists, the ones who said, it doesn't matter what's going on, let them demonstrate, let the international community come down on us, let the economy go where it's going to go, let the uh, people not turn up to the military, which were threats uh, that we even enacted in certain places. We have to do this. This is about the future of our country. This is about letting us rule. This is about letting us make sure that um, uh, the, major the will of the majority is being met. And this is something we promise. And this is something we absolutely must deliver. There are those maximalists. There's another group which say that this reform is extremely important. And eventually, we need to get somewhere close to it. But the way we're going about it is incorrect. And we are losing power. We are losing support, and polls certainly uh, show that. And I can tell you, internal liquid polls are probably even worse uh, as well. There's a lot of suspicion. There's a lot of concern, not necessarily around reforms themselves, but the way that they were pushed through at a lightning speed, the way the opposition caught them unaware, the way they managed to mobilize everything from the national unions, to people, senior army leaders, to academics, to international figures, to international leaders. And they're worried about it. And they're worried that if they continue the way they do, then the Likud will certainly be hurt next time there, there are polls. There is a third group, a smaller group, but significant. And don't forget, in a, in a coalition of 64, you only need four to make uh, laws basically uh, you know, not be able to pass. And there were at least four people in the Likud who said that the reforms are too far. They go too far. Again, these are not people who are against reform. These are people who are against the maximalist form of reform uh, that had been put on the table by Levine, Botman, and others. 
and they felt that this is not the right way to do it. It needs to be more consultation. It needs to be more of a compromise. It needs to be a little bit softer. Yes, reform, but not to this reform. And the voices of those two latter groups were certainly getting larger and larger to a point where Netanyahu simply had to listen. You had someone like Mickey Zar, who is, I believe, the Minister of Sport and Culture, who is an extremely popular person in the party. Not only is he a popular person, he is a person who is very much stands by Netanyahu. He's a Netanyahu loyalist. So when he speaks and he calls out and says, I think we need to stop this process for the moment or pause it or suspend it, then we have to listen. Then you have people like Nir Barkat, who are not necessarily BB loyalists, but they are popular people. And when they say that we have to uh, listen to the, the court, and if the court overrule what we're trying to do, then there's not much we can do. So when these voices were growing, and there were others, David Bitan, there were Yuli Edelstein, and many others, you know, not, not backbenchers here, um, people who, who have, you know, credit in the party, whether they are outside of the BB circle or inside, it doesn't matter, they have support. And they were hearing from the rank and file that this was not done in the best way. So I think there was a level of that that, uh, that pushed it back. Also, there was the idea that on the day of the mass demonstrations, the shutdown of the country, there was a call for six at six o'clock for pro-reform uh, people to take to the streets. And there was this idea that Netanyahu would see how many people really came to the streets to gauge whether he had the support to really push back in on the sort of public playing field. Um, but when it came to it, granted, they, they actually got an impressive amount considering it was only a few hours turnaround. Some say around 100,000, which is not bad. It was not the numbers that he was hoping for, and it certainly didn't have the effect. So again, with all these uh, factors um, in place, it became clear to Netanyahu that this is not uh, the right time. And he rallied support of his uh, leaders of the coalition, and they decided at this point to pause, to go to the uh, president's office, at least, at least for the next few weeks, to try and hammer out some compromise. It remains to be seen how that's going to work its way out. There is minimal trust between the parties. On the government side, they are still, the people who are leading this are still not willing to compromise too much. There have been some minimal compromises over the last few weeks. Perhaps there will be some more. Whether it will be enough to placate the opposition, at this moment, I doubt it. And the opposition on the whole is going into this with minimal trust about the coalition's intentions. They believe that this is a PR exercise. They're coming to the table because they need to, because of all the pressures that I spoke about before. But at the end of the day, they're going to take a hardline position and basically look like they're uh, negotiating, but at the end of the day, nothing really will change. What is interesting uh, that is coming out, especially from the opposition, or almost solely from the opposition, is the idea that perhaps there's an opportunity in this crisis. And I have heard this from quite a few members of Knesset, prominent members of Knesset, especially on the right of the opposition, um, who are saying that perhaps in this, there is an opportunity to write for the first time in the history of the state of Israel, a constitution, as we know, Israel is one of the only countries in the world, along with the UK, that does not have a written constitution, which would have been, which would be, 
one of the checks and balances that some of the other countries have that Israel simply does not, that would put down laws that are far more difficult to change, uh, perhaps take some of the basic laws we already have and make them into a uh, constitution, perhaps give them uh, you know, the power that only a, a supermajority of 67 or more would be able to uh, overrule them. But perhaps, as some argue, this is the time, this is really shown the necessity of a constitution, something which binds the vast majority of the Israeli public. Uh, the idea is a very solid one, it, perhaps it's an important one, but it's an extremely difficult one. You know, most constitutions are written, at least the first draft at the beginning of a state, when there's a need, when all uh, parties and communities and groups disparate as they may be, come together under some sort of unifying character. Um, it's very hard to do 75 years later to try and find some unifying characters. Of course, you could probably find a good majority, perhaps a two-thirds majority for certain Zionist, let's say, quote-unquote, um, constitutional elements. Uh, but really, to deal with some of the more weighty issues, it could be difficult. Don't forget, you have a significant Arab population, you have a significant ultra-Orthodox population, that, and then within all the rest, you have everything from left to right, to religious, to not religious, to traditional, um, to try and find uh, wording that would suit all these different communities could be extremely difficult. Anyone who understands the uh, the time and the efforts it took to even write the Declaration of Independence, which has become a symbol of the anti-reformists uh, uh, these days, uh, knows that every word was poured over. There was big debates whether to use the word God or rock, the Redeemer, I think the word is used, exactly what to mention, what not to mention, and that was just a Declaration of Independence. So I, I'm not overly optimistic that we could write a constitution, though it does seem like the time has uh, come. Before I go to questions, the, the, the question which was asked in the preamble for this webinar, which is probably the most important one, is does this spell the end of the coalition? I would say that it's unlikely that it spells the end of the coalition completely, in other words, that we go to elections. Whether it does spell the end of the coalition in its current guise, that is a possibility. One thing I've spoken about from the beginning, and I've heard constantly from all sides of the aisle, is this need or this want or desire, especially from the side of Netanyahu, to bring in Benny Gantz's party at the cost of someone like Itamar being there, will give him less, far less of a headache diplomatically, politically, uh, on security issues, internal issues, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps this will be the excuse. Perhaps that will be part of the negotiation, uh, part of the leverage that uh, the Netanyahu uh, party and even coalition will say, if we will agree to compromise on judicial reform, then we need uh, at least one of the parties, the opposition, and Benny Gantz has always made the most obvious one, to come into the coalition. That will be the raison d'etre for Itamar Ben-Gvir to leave. Depends whether he will leave with Smotrich or not. The numbers would be pro more problematic without Smotrich, whether they could. They are two separate parties at this point, but whether one could leave without the other uh, remains to be seen. But if there is too much 
give on uh, judicial reform. Certainly, it could be uh, too unpalatable for Ben Gvir, which could give an opportunity for Benny Gantz. Um, so it is a possibility that at some point uh, during or after these negotiations, after some level of judicial reform, which Benny Gantz probably could stomach on the outside, but probably couldn't stomach raising his hand for, uh, that perhaps uh, he'll find his way uh, into the government uh, and that could certainly uh, shake things up. But that remains to be seen. We'll have to see how these negotiations uh, take place, whether they are in good faith, whether there is a possibility to bridge what is at this point a very large gap. I mean, there is a nice amount of time. Don't forget we have the the, uh, the, the Passover holidays. Then we have Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel's Independence Day, um, and some other holidays in between. So it's not so much time, but there's certainly enough time if there is a will to find a compromise. How that compromise can be found, how you can square the circle of Yerav Levine, who wants a majority on the uh, Judicial Appointments Committee, and the opposition do not want to give him. How do you find that out? There are people who have found uh, solutions to far more complicated questions in the past. So it's not a matter of if there is a solution, it's whether it is sought, it's found, and it's necessary for both sides. So we'll be following those negotiations very carefully and we'll keep you abreast of exactly how that works out. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. So the first question is from David S. Levine asking, uh, you pointed out that some Likud members are saying the way we're going about it is incorrect. What exactly is incorrect about the way they're going about it? Can you spell that well, out? The speed, uh, the speed, the fact that literally from the first day, uh, there's a few things I would say. First of all, the speed, um, it looks unseemly. It looks like trying to rush it in. It looks like there's no input, not just from the public, but from other members of Knesset, uh, some of the images that have come out of the committees which have debated it, looks like it's being railroaded, they're not allowed to, to put up their concerns. But what also some, I've heard some supporters of this government ideologically uh, who say that, okay, we're being told that this is the most important thing there is, yet we're seeing all these other unnecessary laws like the Hametz law like the gifts law, which allows a public servant to receive an unlimited gift. And this is mainly seen as allowing Netanyahu to have um, his late cousin's endowment, let's say, uh, to be able to fight his legal battles. That was considered illegal and he had to pay it back. Well, now they're trying to bypass that with the law. Um, there's all sorts of laws. There was the law at one point about uh, modesty at the Kotel. In the end, that wasn't put through. There's all these real superfluous laws that were put in. And interestingly enough, for example, uh, the law which would make sure that the prime minister's three residents, two, res two unofficial residents or one official, would have, would, would, you know, that a lot of money would be spent on their upkeep. Um, you know, the whole coalition was demanded to come out and push these through as quickly as possible. But on some of the other issues, like um, making sure that uh, potential sex offenders, or rather people who are um, who have a record of violence against their spouses, wouldn't be tagged, 
that wasn't uh, considered as important enough. So it, it got a bit of a bad rap and a lot of people were, didn't understand the logic behind it. You know, if it's about reform, let's focus on reform. But all these sort of personalized laws about area dairy to do with uh, Netanyahu, to do with other sectorial needs were, were pushed through uh, as well. So it left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth. And, and a lot of the uh, Likud MKs were hearing this from their constituencies and their, uh, their, their, their central committees. Thank you. A few uh, viewers have asked a similar question to this. An anonymous attendee sums it up pretty well. Is Israel losing its nationalist Zioni uh, attitude that founded the country to become a modern state? In the past, the government and the opposition would come together a la Ben-Gurion or Begin. Uh, well, first of all, that's not true. <laughs> Begin and, uh, and Ben-Gurion did not come together. They did not work together. They ignored each other. They wouldn't even refer to each other by name. So, you know, this idea that things were better in the past is just simply not true. Uh, they did not work at all well together. There was a very brief um, uh, government of national unity around the Six-Day War, but that didn't last very long. They disagreed vehemently, but it was done in a very different spirit. Uh, it was done on the issues. There was more of an overt ideological difference. Some of the differences today are petty. Some of the arguments are just divisive. Um, it's not the end of the Zionist uh, dream. It's not the end of the state of Israel. It's not the end of democracy. Things will and already are working their way uh, up. We have too long a tradition of liberal democracy. We have too much to lose and i think people understand that's why we needed to come back from the brink and i think in the end they will find a compromise you know it's it's not about one side being right so probably the truth is somewhere in the middle the reform the judicial system has uh, allowed itself more powers than it's legally and constitutionally ever was meant to have um, and it has basically just recreated itself in its own image over the years and it has given itself power, uh, judiciability, I think the word is, to basically allow itself to rule on matters where it shouldn't, it's not supposed to be of concern, at least in line with most other democracies and all. So there needs to be some pullback to where it was before the Barak, Aaron Barak revolution. Uh, but as I said, probably most Israelis believe, according to polls, that uh, the maximalist version that's happening now, uh, which is in response to that, uh, is going too far. So hopefully these negotiations will meet the expectations of the majority of Israelis who believe there should be some reform, uh, but not the current uh, level of reform. But I do not believe Zionism is in uh, threat. The state of Israel is not in any sort of threat, despite what our enemies would love to believe. Um, and we'll get through it like we've got through far, far worse crises. Absolutely, I'm sure. Uh, Andy Palak asks along the lines of the compromise, was the Herzog compromise just a mirror of the opposition's position, not taking into consideration the coalition at all, or was it an actual compromise? Well, the original one, yes. The original one, the I've heard from members of the coalition who said that they heard something very different to to what was then publicized by the president. Now, I haven't seen that myself, but I did hear that from a number of sources. Uh, it definitely, on the, the sticking points, especially on the Judicial Appointments Committee, 
uh, didn't really change the situation, uh, ensured that the, situ the current situation where the justice system would continue to be able to have a veto and in fact a majority to be able to choose itself. So that's, that's what really angered the opposition. Um, but now what's happening is it's not necessarily so much that the president's going to come up with a uh, another compromise. It's the groups themselves uh, sort of hosted by the president, perhaps cajoled by the president, perhaps advised by the president will try to come up with a compromise. So what was before is, is pretty much null and void. The negotiations that are taking place today are very much being run by the, the two sides themselves. Oh, this might be a bit of an in-depth question for the last two minutes here, but Robert Larrick asks, why do you think the courts have taken on more powers over the years? Has the government been too polarized and dysfunctional for many years? Or That really is a, a question that would take longer than two minutes, but it's some people point back to Aaron Barak, who became a Supreme Court uh, Justice in the 90s, and he basically really, really changed the system on its head. He gave himself and his court, the Supreme Court, uh, the power to adjudicate on anything they deem fit uh, on the balance of reasonability. Uh, they basically allowed themselves to override or overrule the government, not just, not just uh, on legislation, but also on uh, government decisions. Uh, and basically place themselves, according to the uh, uh, proponents of judicial reform, above the legislature, their unelected representatives, but above all, uh, the overwhelming majority of justices since the beginning of the state of Israel have come from one, let's say, ethnic background, one religious background, one ideological background, what the... Uh, 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 in a coalition currently would say it's Ashkenazi, secular, uh, elite. And, you know, there was a time where Supreme Court justices would say, I cannot find a single Moroccan, which is one of the largest ethnic groups in Israel, I can't find a single Moroccan Jew who I would deem fit to sit on uh, Supreme Court. Now, that would be seen as racist in any other society, but this is what basically we saw. I mean, we saw for the first time only recently, a woman Moroccan judge uh, elected to the Supreme Court justices. Uh, Ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews would say that there's a, a, a lack of uh, justices from their community. Arabs would say the same. Women would say the same. Mizrahim Sephardim would say the same. As I said, they're, they're pretty hom homogeneous um, group. And what the reformists would say is we need to have greater representation. We need to have uh, a wider point of view, and it can't be that justices would only allow their predecessors if they follow their same ideology, their same outlook, their same worldview, and their same background. And that's pretty much, if you look statistically, what's happened. So the reformists would say it's about time we shook that up, and it's about time it was more representative of the wider melting pot of the state of Israel. All right. Well, thank you so much. That brings us to the end of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. Absolutely. Thank you. Of course. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Roz Rothstein discussing Israeli Apartheid Week returns to a campus near you.
Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.